Welcome, welcome. Episode 61 here of the BS of the Suns podcast here on Bright Side of the Sun. This is Chris Habis, as always, and we threw it out there, uh, threw out the feeler to see uh, which of the many new voices of Bright Side of the Sun wanted to jump on and jump on the podcast and talk. And, you know, we may not be as good as Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle, but you know what? My extent of knowledge on baseball goes back to 2001 with that really good movie uh, that was titled 61 um, with uh, Barry Pepper, Thomas Jane about Mantle and Maris chasing the home run record. So I'm going to try and be Mickey Mantle. I'm going to let you, Garrett, go ahead and try and be Roger Maris. You can go ahead and smash 61 on these guys. Um, but Garrett Benson, newest voice or one of the newer voices of Bright Side of the Sun, joining us here on the podcast to talk about various things with the Phoenix Suns. How are you doing, Garrett? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. I'll, uh, I'll do my best to keep up with you here. Yeah, no, it, it's not going to take much effort there. Like I said, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna play Mickey Mantle. I'm gonna go out there and drink until I can't stand and hit a few home runs and watch you break the record here on the podcast. So, uh, <laughs> sounds good. Yeah, definitely not a baseball guy, but that's that's a good movie right there. By the way, go check that out. Baseball makes good movies. Basketball makes some okay movies every now and then. Um, <laughs> but for for the folks that I mean, I know you've written a handful of things already on the website and you've been introduced in that capacity, but. Let's let's talk a little bit about you real quick. Let's introduce you to the audience there. Uh, first and foremost, what is your background with the Phoenix Suns as a fan and overall in general? What's your connection to the Suns? Well, uh, let's see. I'm a, I've been a Suns fan for as long as I can remember. I've lived here for most of my life. Um, I really got into the Suns, I would say, in, uh, when Steve Nash came back, so like 2004-2005 season, um, but ever since then, I've lived and breathed Sun. I love talking about it. Any chance I can get, you know, I'll talk your ear off about the Sun. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to be writing for Brightside. Um, it's an incredible site, and there's tons of passionate fans. So it's, it's a very exciting time for me as a Suns fan. Yeah, we're definitely glad to have you on there. We had our, our staff put together, and then Dave King said, you know what, guys? we need some new voices. Not that our current voices were bad or that anyone was, do, was doing anything wrong, but we needed to add some new voices. And I'm glad. I mean, a lot of you guys, you know, I've read a lot of your sta- your stuff and read a lot of your takes. And uh, the most recent thing you had written there about Greg Monroe and his fit with the Suns. And as much as Greg Monroe is going to be a terrific NBA player, uh, probably a fringe all-star for most of his career, if not potentially reaching that level of being an all-star, he's, he's a terrific player and talent. But you had wrote kind of the similar opinion that I have. He may not be the best fit on this current team, the way they're put together and the way they like to play. It, granted, a, a counterbalance is not a bad thing, having a guy that has his skill set and plays a little bit slower. But you had recently written about how that doesn't fit, and there's a conglomerate of Suns fans that would love to have Greg Monroe. Talk about that a little bit and how you feel with Greg Monroe fitting here on the Suns. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Greg Monroe is a fine player. I like him a lot. I think, as you said, he's going to have a great career in the NBA, and he is very good at what he does, but he also has some pretty clear drawbacks, and I think um, were he to join the Suns, those drawbacks would uh, sort of outweigh the good things he does. And the good things he does would be uh, rebounding and posting up, and he runs the floor pretty well. And, you know, we could certainly use that on our team, but then you you have to take the good with the bad with him. So with him on the floor, you're, you're definitely sacrificing on shooting. Uh, the spacing goes out the door, especially if he's playing four with Plumlee at the five. Um, and if you do have him at the five, 
playing center, then you sacrifice hugely on rim protection because uh, he's he's just not a leaper. He he's a little undersized at five, and he's a little too slow for the four. And uh, what I mean by slow is moving laterally. Um, he just he has trouble keeping up with mobile fours. You know, someone like Thaddeus Young, um, he'd have a, a difficult time keeping up with someone like that. I mean, he obviously doesn't bring any sort of three-point shooting, which um, the Suns' offense is, is predicated on uh, mobile big men who can hit the three. So I, I just don't see how he would really fit into this current group right now. Um, with that being said, he's a great player, and I think if he were on the right team, you know, a Memphis-style team that plays a grinded-out style, he'd be perfect. That's just not our situation, though, and I don't think it would be worth it to rework so much of our playbook over Greg Monroe. And I, I, it's certainly not for Max Mummy too, on our team. Yeah, I'm I'm looking at Greg Monroe and I'm thinking, you know, how about the Detroit Pistons just get rid of Josh Smith, which was uh, Joe Dumars's final terrible decision, I guess. Um, yeah. Let, let let them get rid of Josh Smith and let Andre Drummond and Greg Monroe just figure out if they're going to be a great front court or not. Like let's let's do that. Let's not try and get Greg Monroe to come over here and then try and reinvent the wheel with something that won 48 games last year. We're we're going to kind of come back to that and circle the wagon on the roster as it's currently constituted and seeing where that goes. But So you mentioned Greg Monroe, maybe not worth max money. There's another guy in Phoenix, fits well in this system, did a great job with the Suns last year, was part of the reason why they won 48 games. Eric Bledsoe, max money, max contract. Now, behind the scenes, I don't know. this is a little inside baseball for you guys. By the way, too many baseball references. i got to stop doing that. With it. That's the last one for this podcast. I don't. I can't stand baseball, and that's the second reference that we're using already. But some inside baseball. So behind the scenes, you know, via Gmail or whatever email accounts we have, we do a lot of conversating with the Brightside staff. And the idea of Max Money and Eric Bledsoe is a conversation we probably email threaded about between a thousand messages overall over the past couple of weeks to couple of months. Where do you stand on? What is like the floor for an Eric Bledsoe contract, and what is the ceiling for an Eric Bledsoe contract to let this team still grow and become better over the years? Uh, yeah, I would say the floor is probably a little higher than that twelve million offer. Um, I think it would be great to get him at that price. I I don't see it realistically happening, um, and I am one of the few who thinks he is worthy of the max. Um, you know, we, we tend to forget that you, you pay a player for what he will do with his next contract, not what he has done previously. Um, and I think for the potential that Blesso has, he's definitely worth that max money. Um, it, when you look at the guys, uh, as, our, as our boss, Dave King, pointed out um, in his article the other day where he compared so with the other max contract guys, um, his numbers are just slightly below those guys, but he is uh, very high on the defensive rating within that group, that group being uh, Kyrie Irving, John Wall, Russell Westbrook, uh, Derrick Rose. Um, of those five guys, he has the, the, well, the lowest defensive rating, which means he was the best among them um, from last season. Now that there's the caveat that Westbrook and Rose, who are probably the best defenders of those groups, um, had injuries to deal with. But I, I still think that's a pretty 
remember. Um, so we we tend to forget how great of a defender Bledsoe is and the potential he has to grow. And with that in mind, I think he's absolutely worth that max deal. I'm curious. And, well, I'm I'm curious with what not to cut you off there. I want you to give me what you think he's worth in terms. of, I know you said you're probably one of the guys that's more on the max now. When you're talking about potential of impact of winning, that that's one of the things that I look at. Of course, you're going to pay him based on his performance plus his perceived potential. You know, a lot of P's there. You're paying him on those things. But in terms of impact on winning, I know with the Suns' system, he probably has more of an impact on winning than if he was, say, with Memphis, as you mentioned, that kind of a team before that's more grind it out, slow it down. Mm-hmm. But, but is he going to impact winning more than, say, a Jeff Teague? than, say, a Drew Holiday, even though Drew Holiday's been on atrocious teams for his entire career, so we can't really talk on that a lot. But is he a guy that's really going to move the needle in terms of wins and losses more than those guys? Because he might be more talented. He might put up better numbers. But is he actually going to help the Suns with winning? Is it going to go 48, 51, 55, first round, second round, winning playoff games? That I think that's where my, my uh, gap in the floor and the ceiling of his contract go. I don't think I want to go near the max. And I trend more towards the twelve million. Actually, I think I'm a guy that thinks that twelve million is actually fair. Yeah, well, I understand that um, because you know throughout his career he has not been significantly better than those uh, that second tier of point guards that you mentioned, like the the Pigs and the uh, uh, not Curry because he's underpaid, but y- you know that group of players. Um, but I think that he would be worth more money to Phoenix just because of how perfectly he fit with Drogic, um, you know, in, the, in those small sample of games they got to actually start together. Right? I guess it's not that small for those 30 games. But just based off of that alone and how perfectly he fit, how underrated he is on the defensive end, I absolutely think he's worth maybe not the max, but just just slightly underneath it. I think 14 is probably the perfect spot for him, 14 million a year. Um, and I also don't want to – I I don't like the idea of uh, getting tied up with five years with him. I think four years is a sweet spot, um, and possibly three if, if they can work that out. Now – I'm glad that you mentioned that. I, the reason I wanted to ask that question was a little bit of like, you know, leading you into what I wanted you to say, because I that's kind of where I feel is that he's a perfect fit for the Phoenix Suns. So when you consider right. like Jeff Teague, for example, Jeff Teague is not going to draw a lot of money from another team, but Atlanta's going to look at him and go, hey, you're the you're the cart that pulled the or you're the horse that pulled our cart and you did a lot of mm-hmm. great things with us. So we're going to pay you more. So internal value is worth a lot more based on style of play and continuity of the team. So that that makes a lot of sense there. Now, to go into the comments, the reason why we bring up Eric Bledsoe, and first and foremost, I want everyone to to sit down for a second, breathe, listen to listen to this statement really quickly and understand Eric Bledsoe for a moment. He's not a wordsmith. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that he's not the guy that after the after the games you're going to go to him like a Marcin Gortat, a Channing Fry, a Steve Nash, guys that the Suns fans are familiar with who are going to go out there and give you amazing quotes and say great things and be very eloquent. And he's very much a reserved guy. He doesn't speak a lot, speaks in very, very, very short sentences. He used to just give one-word answers when he first hit the Suns, and he evolved into being a sentence guy. Um, it took him a while, but he, he's not a guy that's a wordsmith. So when you hear the words, first off, I'm letting my agent Rich Paul handle it. I can understand the Phoenix Suns are using restricted free agency against me, but I can understand that. 
I I'm I'm curious based on the fact that I've had conversations with Eric Bledsoe. I've covered him for a lot of home games and back when he was at the Clippers and leading into the draft back when he was, you know, in college. I've spoken to him on many occasions. I don't read that as a guy that's, you know, going into the media and saying the Suns are trying to swindle me. This is terrible. You know, I need to get out. That's that's a guy that's just putting together his thoughts. And I don't think I think that that might be taken a little bit out of context. And he might read that with the way people are writing on it and consider coming out and maybe saying something else. But he's not that guy that goes out into the media. So I want people to understand that. I think that we're reading way too far into that comment that he made because that's just that's not his forte. He's not a wordsmith. He's not a guy that's going to go out there and say a lot of amazing things or a lot of lightning rod type things. He's going to say something and we're going to have to kind of interpret it based on how much we know about the kid. But when you read that, when you first saw that comment go up on every single website, what, what was your initial reaction to that? Oh, yeah, you know, I'm really glad you said that because I I didn't put, you know, too much credit into it. Especially because um, when it's when people throw it around on Twitter, it's usually out of context, and they don't put those two. You know, I understand why they're doing this. I understand, and I think that's really important to it. Um, you know, he's Eric Bledsoe is a soft-spoken guy, and he just he doesn't have a whole lot to say. I don't really take that as um, him not being him not wanting to be here, as some fans do. I think that's just his personality, and I don't really see it as. Um, you know, as as him having any sort of negative feelings towards the Phoenix Suns, um, and especially after this, you know, this report the last few days that the that their relation their relationship is becoming um, irreparable. You know, I don't I don't believe that at all. Especially, you know, we don't have any sort of legitimate source, just someone who's supposedly close to the situation. I just I don't really put a whole lot of credit into it, and I think people are just misinterpreting a soft-spoken guy who, you know, we've seen him all year, so we just we know that's kind of how he is. I think on a national scene, this is a very appealing story in the respect that LeBron James has already written his letter, and he's taken off to go do things in, you know, in, in China and, and in his different camps and going on vacation right. and all that fun stuff. And Carmelo Anthony is signed and he's made his comments and we've already had our, our time talking about that, that he's just chasing the money. Um, Kevin love trade rumors. It, it feels like this is just the next thing in the progression. Like if you would have started at the beginning of free agency and listed the top 10 most intriguing things, I'm not saying Eric Bledsoe's was number 10, but if his was number 10, then all nine of them have already been knocked off. And now we're just, this is him. He's slot. This is his time to be the most intriguing story in the NBA. Um, exactly. So, yeah, beyond beyond Kevin Love, where he where is he gonna go? Will Josh Smith or Greg Monroe get traded? Like those kind of secondary stories. Rajon Rondo is he gonna get traded? Another secondary story. Um, it's Eric Bledsoe. Eric Bledsoe and Kevin Love are the rest of the summer. They're the rest of the intriguing things to kind of look at and follow. And I think this is just the natural step in the Twitter world that we live in, the internet world that we live in, where it's just it's his turn to be talked about. And so he's going to have to get ready for microphones to be shoved in his face. Rich Paul gets to take up center stage once again. And we're just going to have to kind of let this one pass through and then let people gravitate their attention towards something else once Phoenix either delivers an offer to him or the qualifying offer is signed. Definitely. It's just, you know, it's the last thing to talk about, and that's, that's just the state of the Twitter world we live in. 
which is amazing. I mean, don't we just love this Twitter world that we live in? I forget what coach was it Frank Vogel? Yeah, it was Frank Vogel when people were talking about whether or not he was going to get fired and how terrible he was doing with Indiana down the stretch of the season. He said that you know the NBA world moves at the speed of Twitter, which I think might be the best quote in the in the NBA this past year. So, uh, which is extremely true, and it's kind of sad. That's why I don't jump on Twitter as much as I used to. Um, now other comments that were made, very positive comments actually from ESPN, I believe True Hoops, David Thorpe had put together, I don't know if it was an article cause I didn't, I didn't necessarily read it if it was, but I know I saw the comments of TJ Warren being the best overall rookie from summer league. And I mean that right there in and of itself is an oxymoron because it's summer league and we're talking about something that's a best performance. Those two things probably don't go together. Um, as we joked before we came on the podcast, if Summer League was an indicator of NBA success, Marco Bellinelli would have a few MVP trophies. He doesn't, though. It is what it is. So with, with TJ Warren, you watched more Summer League than I did. You watched a few games. You saw his big performances. I think you had also probably seen the game where he got cut up and they just took him out of the game. What was your overall thoughts on watching TJ Warren play? Because my assessment as a guy that covers the draft was he went out there and did what we know he can do. He got buckets and he did them in a, a unique kind of efficient variety that wasn't just chucking up threes and scoring in transition. Right. Yeah. So, um, so they, they said he was the best overall rookie. And I, I think for the most part, that's probably true. Um, you know, I was really surprised to see he looked a lot better than someone like, uh, Jabari Parker, who just did not look like he was in shape at all. But yeah, as you said, Warren did pretty much exactly what we expected him to do. He came in, scored buckets, he didn't play stellar defense. Um, he maybe gambled a little too much on steals. Uh, that would be my one big takeaway from his defense. Um, but yeah, he, he very clearly is a capable scorer. And I think, um, that's his one big skill and that'll certainly translate, uh, to the NBA level. Um, I, they were saying, uh, David Thorpe was saying that he's a better scoring version of Luau Dang, like the current version of Luau Dang right now. So I think that's pretty high praise, and, you know, hopefully we get to see a little bit of that um, next season, although I think he's going to have trouble getting minutes behind uh, our current small forward depth with C.J. Tucker and uh, Marcus Morris. Yeah, and I, I think that what he brings to the wing, whether we see it this year or we see it in a year or two because rookies are rookies, um, he didn't go number one overall for a reason. He went down to 14 because he's a guy that's very talented but you know may not be that impact right away guy or that guy that's going to like steal the stage immediately. But with T.J. Warren, I mean, he's a guy that you have Gerald Green that can shoot threes and dunk, as I kind of you know, said tongue-in-cheek a moment ago. A lot of scoring in the NBA from scorers is chucking up threes and dunking in transition. We get that from Gerald Green. P.J. Tucker hits corner threes and plays defense. You have Marcus Morris, who does I mean, he can do a lot of things on offense. He just doesn't do any of them necessarily at a very high level. But when you're looking at the the three position, that guy that can swing between the three and the four, I guess, or mainly the three, he does things that are different than those guys. He scores in between the three-point line and the paint, gets to the free throw line, scores in an efficient way. I think he's a, an underrated passer and defender, so we'll see those things kind of develop once he gets in there against NBA athletes. But, you know, it was it was just interesting to see that a national guy like David Thorpe putting that praise together, you know, as you mentioned, the Luol Deng comparison and talking about just kind of what he does. I, I've heard Cedric Sabalos being talked about as a guy that gets 20 and you look at the box score and goes, he only took 13 shots and he had 20 points, and oh. I don't remember any of them, but he, you know, he went out there <laughs> and he scored. 
Yeah, so I mean, it's, he's he's definitely an interesting guy. I think he'll do some some fun things on the wing for this team um, going forward. The rest of the rookies obviously are going to be in different situations, um, you know, in Europe or not on the roster. Uh, we'll kind of see how those guys kind of come together. Tyler Ennis will be yeah. probably playing a lot of D League, I would imagine. Yeah. Well, the good thing about Warren is that you know he gets a lot of his points off of uh, cutting to the basket, you know, playing without the ball and, and putbacks and stuff like that. So he doesn't have to have the ball in his hands to to be an effective scorer and I think uh, that is definitely something that would help a rookie coming in um, you know we might see some sort of impact from him just because of that skill set yeah absolutely and like in that Deontay Christmas role of hey you know wings get your head out of your you know what you're not playing effective basketball hey TJ go in there and show these guys how it's done I know you're thirsty for some minutes and then he right. goes out there and he doesn't need the ball in his hands. And what's good, I mean, here's the thing about the point guard situation. I've complained about it before, and I've spoke to the positives of having the four guys that they have on the roster there. But having those four guys basically means that at any given time, two of them might be on the court with someone like TJ Warren, who's moving around continuously without the ball, and they have a scoring target that they can get the ball to if they're not scoring themselves the pick and roll, the, the stretch fours that are on the court. So having him moving around does create a little bit more of a dynamic to the offense that they kind of had last year, but probably not on the level of a T.J. Warren. Right, yeah. And I, I also kind of think he might be a, sort of underrated at a, at a, as a power forward option. Um, I think he has a pretty nice high post game. You know, he's got a decent jump shot from that spot, um, and he can really get to the rim and, you know, get that floater off. So, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see him somewhere down the road looking at power forward moments. Yeah, and that's where you mentioned Jabari Parker with his play in the summer league. He's a guy as well that probably starts. Carmelo Anthony, I think, is the the epitome of that, where he's a guy who's six eight, six nine, starts off as a three because that just makes the most sense for him, and eventually mm-hmm. gets his man strength, his NBA strength, and becomes more efficient as a four. Does more dynamic things as a four. T.J. Warren might be that guy. He might be a, a touch smaller than guys like Carmelo or or like a Paul Millsap, those guys that are playing the four now, yeah. but. Yeah, I mean he's you know six eight. He's long. He could shoot. He can score. He can get around guys. We just got to get that man strength, right? You got you got to yeah. play in the league for a few years to get ready to bang against Zach Randolph <laughs> for a few plays. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. I think the Paul Millsap comparison is a really good one. You know, I'd I'd like to see him blossom into that type of player. That that's my best case scenario for him. Yeah, I'm I'm not a guy that likes to prognosticate or, or kind of, you know, make overlandish predictions without having sources and stuff like that. But with the way the Suns swung and miss on free agency this year, you mentioned a guy in Paul Millsap that I think would be at or near the top because he hasn't signed his deal. He's going to get a, a pretty nice deal next year after his two years run out in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. He's a guy that I think would just, I mean, be amazing in the Phoenix Suns system with the way their perimeter is set up and Miles Plumley on the back yeah. line and letting him go out there and do all those Miles or uh, uh, Paul Millsap things that he does. Right. Yeah, and he's he's developing a pretty good three point shooter too. So. Exactly, yeah, all-star version of Paul Millsap. I mean, I'm sure Atlanta will try and keep him because um, he, he's yeah. you know tremendous player, very undervalued. You know, Utah let him go probably a little prematurely. I think that he would make a lot of sense on that roster there with Derek Favors and those guys. But let's let's switch it back to the Suns. I, I don't want to spend too much time on the negatives, but just a quick take on, first off, the name was amazing. Um, not to you know speak lightly of the situation, but the name of the arrest of P.J. Tucker, I thought was... Uh, <laughs> 
I think that's going to be a very conversational thing throughout the NBA year and on Twitter and whatnot. But initial thoughts on P.J. Tucker's arrest, which technically happened back in May, signed his contract afterwards. Phoenix Suns haven't made a huge hubbub about it. But what were your initial thoughts on that? Uh, well, you know, everything P.J. does, he does it really hard, right? You know, could yeah. we expect anything less from him? Um, yeah, it's it's a little disheartening, um, especially a guy like P.J., who, uh, you know, he seems to really care about his perception um, with the public. And, um, you know, he's invested in the Phoenix Suns. You know, he's, he's previously said, I want to be a Phoenix Sun for life. So it's a little disappointing to see him go out and get this super-duper DUI or, you know, super-extreme, whatever it's called. Um, it's, it's, not, it's definitely not a good thing, but, uh, you know, he still got his contract, as you said, it was afterwards. So, you know, the Phoenix Suns obviously aren't too upset with it. Um, and, you know, hopefully this doesn't have any negative repercussions on the upcoming season. Hopefully he doesn't lose any games um, to suspension or, or you know, God forbid, time in jail would be pretty bad. But, you know, it is what it is. And hopefully this is just one little black mark that will not tarnish the rest of P.J. Tucker's career with the Phoenix Suns. Exactly, exactly. And and, and the, my first thought was P.J. Tucker was the guy. I mean, I, I'm not saying that there's certain guys on the Suns where I'd go, yeah, that makes sense. Of course, that guy got busted <laughs> for extreme DUI, but or super extreme DUI. Um, but P.J. Tucker would probably be in the top three of the last guys I would think of. I mean, you know, him oh, along yeah, with maybe definitely. like, yeah, like maybe him and Gorin and, and Ryan McDonough and Jeff Hornacek. Like the, those are those are the guys <laughs> where I would be like, there's no way those guys are going to have that happen. But I mean, you know, mistakes happen. It is what it is. And uh, I'm sure, yeah. you know, it's something to learn from. It's something to kind of build off of for him. And as you mentioned before, as long as it doesn't lead to, you know, like any NBA missed time, jail time, things like that. I mean, this is an opportunity for him to turn it around in the community and let folks know, like become maybe an advocate for something like this. We'll see how it ends up getting spun in hopefully a positive yeah. manner. But yeah, he's absolutely the last guy I would think of from just general conversations I've had with the guy, what he's been through in his career to maybe have something like that sneak up on him when his contract negotiations are going to happen. So like having yeah. this happen in May and then going, I got to still sign a contract in the NBA all this stuff that I've gone through to get here. And now this, ha I mean, that's, that's what popped in my head is I, I couldn't believe that that was him that let it happen. And, and around that time that he let that happen. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's definitely a little out of character. Um, it, you know, it's kind of funny how a lot of times these, a lot of these Phoenix guys are linked to these DUIs. What is it with Phoenix guys and DUIs? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was talking to someone about the whole the Mark Grace stuff and uh and, mm -hmm. you know you got PJ Tucker now and I mean if Jerry Colangelo was running the team I think PJ would have already been signed and traded by now cuz yeah. yeah yeah as soon as anything happened under Colangelo's watch those guys were gone whether they were mega all-stars or borderline roster players. Yeah, you know and then you know it happened with Jason Richardson and then uh Michael Beasley had the marijuana bust but you know it, it's it's a little strange um and hopefully that's not a trend that continues. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, we'll see what happens as we're going forward that. And again, I just wanted to touch on it lightly. It's been written about it nauseum. And, uh, you know, I, I think that it's, it's something that's, it's non-basketball and if it affects basketball, then that'll be where, where it comes in and we'll talk about it more. But as of this moment, it's a non-basketball thing. It's not going to affect the Phoenix Suns as of this moment. Um, it's just something to kind of in the news with them. Now, Eric Bledsoe, in some capacity, I think we both agree is going to be a Phoenix Sun when the season starts, or, or do you like just 
maybe is it what what are the odds you think what are the percentages of eric bledsoe being signed and traded versus being a member of the phoenix suns on opening night i would say there's a 98 percent chance he's a phoenix Sun. Okay. I, I don't see any situation where we trade him I, I just don't see it happening i don't see any sort of situation where we would get back equal or better talent which if we're not then there's absolutely no point in doing it so i i I would almost stake my life that we're going to see Bledsoe in the Phoenix Suns uniform next season. That's kind of my thought. My thought, I don't know where the, um, I'm not a big CBA guy in terms of like when contracts are signed versus when you can trade a guy, but like if, if Eric Bledsoe, if anything's going to happen with him in terms of trades, it'll probably be all-star around all-star of next year ver- or this current coming season, but next calendar year. That'll probably be the time yeah. that we maybe see him traded if something is put together with Ryan McDonough and Eric Bledsoe, and he basically says, "All right, just play your butt off for the first half of the season. We'll find you a home. I know you don't want to be here. Like we'll make that happen. Like that would be more realistic than him getting traded." But the reason I ask that right. is when you look at the roster as currently constituted. Now on Suns.com, they got guys like uh, Alec Brown and Bogdan Bogdanovich and Emeka Okafor and Leandro Barbosa still attached to the roster in some capacity. Those guys will obviously. Well, I shouldn't say obviously, but those guys will more than likely not be members of the Suns. Maybe Alec Brown gets you know on there and, and is one of the last guys. But as the roster is currently constituted, what is left? H- how many moves are needed? What is still needed when you look at this roster the way it's currently put together to make this a 48-win or better team? Because what all's the I'm sure all the Suns fans want to see is continuity or progression. They don't want to see a step back from that amazing year that we saw last year. Right. Um, well, I think we definitely need to go out and sign another point guard, don't you think? I think that we're a little light in that position. Um, I mean, anybody under six foot, if they can find them, let's go ahead and sign them. Yeah, definitely. Um, no, but seriously, I think um, probably I would say there's I, my guess, or I, I guess my hope is that there's still one more move away. And my gut reaction would be that it would be in the form of a trade and not free agency because you know, the free agency pool is pretty much dried up at this point. Um, but, you know, the real hold on the Phoenix Suns when you look at, at the roster is, is, is certainly power forward. Um, you know, with the departure of Fry and with the, the arrival of um, Tolliver, um, that's, it, you're not going to get the same production from Tolliver that he did Fry, although Tolliver's pretty good. And, um, you know, moving Marquise Morris while Marquise Morris is, you know, a very good power forward, I think, um, into the starting lineup. Um, I think he's a better fit as a sixth man. Um, and I don't, I'm not entirely, entirely convinced that he's going to develop that long range game that we, uh, were so successful with, with our fours having, um, last season. So, I definitely think there's a move coming, hopefully, to get uh, a ranger power forward and to open up some minutes for some of the other guys because we're a little stacked at some of those positions, like two, three, four. When you think about the idea, and obviously a move needs to happen for this to go through, but would you think that the Suns would be extremely satisfied if they ended free agency where when the season started that not not going to name any starters, but that their first three guys off of the bench were Isaiah Thomas, 
Markeith Morris, and Gerald Green. Do you think that they would be extremely satisfied if they were able to keep those guys together as a bench trio versus being forced to start one or two of those guys, Markeith obviously being the obvious one that would start? Oh, yeah. I mean, definitely you want to keep that group together because that is probably top three or better bench right there in terms of scoring. Um, so if you can find a way to get Marquise back to the bench and at the same time insert uh, a Ranger four, then, you know, this team is definitely going places. As it is right now, I'm not I'm not really sure this is this team is a whole lot better than last year's. I, um, you know, you, you have Isaiah Thomas here, but you lost Fry. So it, it's, it's difficult to gauge. Um, and especially with Dallas, you know, getting much better, it's, I think it's going to be tough and it'll be a dogfight for that, uh, eighth seed as it is right now. So I think they're, they're one move away from like true playoff contention. Um, because at best case now, they make the eighth seed, maybe get to the second round, and then that's it. You know, and I think we need one more move to really put us into a good position there. Because I'm looking at look at the champions for a second. Look at the San Antonio Spurs, and continuity is really important. That's one of those things where you want to try and continue with rhythm with flow with uh, chemistry and things of that nature and what San Antonio would always do Tony Parker goes down they need to start a point guard well they didn't just say all right Patty Mills you're our next minutes per game point guard you do awesome things for us off the bench no they threw Corey Joseph or Nando DiColo into the starting lineup and then they rotated in Patty Mills like he usually does to create to continue with that chemistry that flow the the minute management that pop had and it created a champion now and i'm not saying you start anthony tolliver duh and then you bring markeith off the bench duh and then the phoenix suns will win 48 games or more that's it's not the same team you know anthony tolliver mm-hmm. is is channing fry light if we're if we're going to talk about that in terms of being a stretch four and you know the things that he can do but do you do you start Anthony Tolliver? Like, let's say the one move doesn't happen, you go into the season with the roster currently constructed. Do you start Anthony Tolliver with that mindset of wanting to keep Markeith as what he was last year, a top five, maybe a little bit better, six man of the year candidate? Wow, that's an interesting question. Um, I my my gut reaction would be no. Um, you keep you would put Markeith Morris in the starting lineup, and then just I guess sort of uh, roll the dice with uh, this this new. Uh, Isaiah Thomas led bench uh, with Anthony Tolliver with him. Um, you know, I'm a pretty strong proponent of, of starting your five best players, and uh, we see some teams get in trouble for not doing that. Um, I'm thinking mainly of OKC. Um, but yeah, I, I would definitely still start Marquise over Tolliver. Because the interesting thing with that is there's, I mean, there's more than two philosophies, but if you're saying you start your best five players and then other people say, well, you start your best four players and you have your fifth best guy come off the bench to create that curveball and and change up the pace against the other teams when they put their bench in, which is not going to have a guy that's on the same talent level as what you're bringing off the bench. Again, the San Antonio philosophy, OKC back with James Harden. We've seen a lot of teams do that over the years. Lamar Odom with the Lakers a little bit. So teams will do that to throw that curveball, and it's successful in a lot of ways, um, and then it, it ends up backfiring in other ways, as you mentioned before. So I'm curious if that ends up being something that gets talked about. When you look at the roster, though, you mentioned the one more move away. It's hard to look at this roster and go, where does that move come from? Because 
your best assets are in a lot of ways your best players. You don't necessarily have a lot of young guys that are really super coveted around the league. Like Miles Plumley is your pretty much your only center if Alex Len can't stay healthy. You have Bledsoe and Dragic who are your driving forces, and then you have your rookies who are T.J. Warren and Tyler Ennis and the rights to other players, but. There's not like this hidden asset, really good player that hasn't gotten on an NBA court to expose themselves that other teams are drooling over on this roster. So where does that one move come from? Is it three-team trade, package deal? Do you move that Lakers five pick? Like where would that last move come from if you're trying to be creative and try and get the maximum value back for a move and still make this team as good as it can be? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't think it's... I, I really hope it's not in the form of that Lakers pick because right now that's looking like gold. Um, but I think uh, the more, at least Marcus Morris is very tradable. Um, it, it may require shipping off Marquise. Um, I, I hope that doesn't happen, but that may be something that has to happen. Um, and then as, as much as it pains me to say, but Gerald Green is looking like a pretty tradable asset right now. But that uh, I think it's three and a half million, and with the season he put in last year, he's at the probably the pinnacle of his trade value right now. So I think there are certainly options, you know, and it it's tough to to really pick one because you know you you think you're losing something, but the idea is the bigger picture, and hopefully uh, giving up someone like Green or or the Morrises would pay off dividends in the end. Yeah, because it, it's one thing to look at, and what did people do last year with this team? Oh, man, they're full of assets. They got Eric Bledsoe. They have the Emeka Okafor contract. They have their pick. They have the Lakers pick. They have you know all these assets. They, no one had a name last year, and now all of a sudden these guys have names because they went out there and did stuff and showed their value for a team that won 48 games. So it's kind of hard when you start thinking about it that way. Last year, so much easier because... Who knew right. what Eric Bledsoe was going to be, right? Who knew that this team was going to do what they did? So you look at the roster and you go, all right, yeah, trade these assets. They, they're, they're nameless faces to me. Now they're, they're face-filled names. You know what they can do. And you're right. I mean, Gerald Green's a tradable asset, but he's extremely valuable. I mean, that one three a half and, and one dunk a half that he would do, I used to joke that you know while we're at the games, we're getting it one dunk and one three, if not more, per half, and they're going to be electric, and they're going to you know make the momentum go, and if we don't get those, we lose the game. So, it, you know, trading him is tough, even though his value is super high. He's also very valuable to the Suns. So making that one move, you know, circling the wagon back to, I think we're one move away, adding a four-man that can be comparable to what Fry did last year or in some capacity, stretch the floor and do things for the offense. Finding that one move, I think, is a lot tougher now than maybe what it was last year. Sure, definitely. Um, you know, and and maybe the, you know, maybe future picks come into it, but it, it is really tough to... Um, to even think about, you know, not having Green on this team next season after what he did last year. But, yeah, I, I certainly see what you're saying. All right, so let's end it on the note that everybody wants to hear about. So everyone listen for 30-plus minutes for us to get to this here. Let's talk about Kevin Love. Um, <laughs> so from a national perspective, you're a national fan now, and you look at a package led by Clay Thompson. You look at a package led by uh, Andrew Wiggins. And you look at a package led by a three-team deal that maybe has Thaddeus Young and the Lakers pick going to Minnesota. I think those are probably the three situations. I guess Houston's being mentioned as a team that's interested. And obviously there's 29 teams in the league that would love to have the services of Kevin Love. 
you look at that from a national perspective. What's the best deal? You're Kevin McHale, or sorry, not Kevin McHale. Uh, you're the guys over there in Minnesota, and you're going to make that move. What is the right move for Minnesota when you look at those packages? Uh, I probably the Wiggins deal, especially if um, if Bennett is still involved in that. Um, I think you get a lot of good talent right now, and then you're also pretty set for the future. I mean, I don't. I don't. I'm not sure why it's even a question why you wouldn't pick Wiggins over uh, Clay Thompson. Clay Thompson, you know, great player, and I I don't understand why Golden State wouldn't throw him at that Minnesota deal right away because I think uh, they'd be getting a steal there. But you know, they're too stingy with him. Um, but yeah, I definitely think Wiggins would be uh, setting them up for good things in the future. I think he's going to be a really great player. Um, but then, you know, from the perspective of Cleveland, I'm not so sure they want to make that deal now. But, you know, who knows? Yeah, I'm looking at, I talked to, to Nate Parham, was on the podcast last week, talking WNBA, and then we went in on a little bit of Golden State stuff. So we talked about Kevin Love, and he brought up an interesting point. Well, as we were talking, I think we both kind of came to the same conclusion that, okay, so you trade Clay Thompson. That sucks because, you know, he's the Splash Brothers and he can shoot and he defends and he does a lot of awesome things for Golden State. But you trade Clay Thompson, you trade David Lee. Well, you sub in Kevin Love for David Lee. It's an obvious upgrade. And then you still have Andre Iguodala as that designated defender. You still have, mm-hmm. granted, Harrison Barnes got to prove himself, but he's still a guy that can shoot and score and play basketball. Hopefully he gets better after that sophomore slump. You have Draymond yeah. Green off the bench. You have Andrew Bogut and Love as your front court. You start piecing together your bench. Um, they've already done a decent job with that over the summer. So I, I don't get why they would be hesitant on throwing Clay Thompson out there again, like you were saying, because when you start putting it together, you're still going to be a pretty darn good defensive team with Iguodala taking over Clay Thompson's role and then having Kevin Love out there to help balance the offense out. I, I think it's a it's a swing and a, and a hit for that team. And with Cleveland, I don't love the fit. I, I Granted, we we all thought Chris Bosh was the weak banana, and then he turned out to be probably the second best player on the Miami Heat for a while there. Kevin yeah. Love could definitely do that with finding his niche as a rebounder and shooter, but there's not that Dwayne Wade to bridge the gap. He's going to have to be maybe the second best player on that team. Kyrie Irving, we can have that debate, but I don't know if he would be as effective as a as a Chris Bosh because Chris Bosh played a little bit of defense. Um, so I, I don't yeah. I don't I don't love Kevin Love on that roster. You might disagree, but I, I don't see him being worth and Andrew Wiggins, Anthony Bennett, other considerations type package. Yeah, it's such a tough call because, you know, you think about the potential of, you know, love throwing full-court passes to LeBron and how great they would be in a, in a full-court scenario. Um, you know, when you think about it that way, you're like, oh, why wouldn't you do it? But at the same time, the potential of Wiggins and, you know, his potential to grow into uh, elite uh, wing defender with LeBron, the thought of being, you know, uh, a team in the East, uh, a player on a team in the East playing against Wiggins and LeBron is just a terrifying thought. Um, so I, I don't see any deal happening there, um, at least not during the summer. I think if it would happen, it would probably happen at the deadline or close to it. Because I, I think they want to see how, how Wiggins works out over there. Um, and, you know, Wiggins is, I'm sorry, Love is, uh, gives you a better chance at winning now, but I think the prospect of the Wiggins-LeBron defensive tandem is just too good to pass up. 
It could be. It could be. I, I, I like the fit a lot more. I, I, I don't want to say I love the fit a lot more, but I like the fit a lot more with Kevin Love over with Golden State. I mean, I, I don't see it being unsuccessful with Cleveland. I think that that could be a, a really good team, obviously. Um, but just kind of looking at the semantics of the roster and, and going, okay, we well, have Kyrie, you have Kevin Love, you have LeBron James. Is it is that better than the trio you had in Miami? And then looking then at the supporting cast, which gets you know whittled away a little bit because you have to lose, you have to move some of those players to get Kevin Love. Is that a better team than than what they had in Miami, which was a championship team? Again, LeBron James is the best player in the world, so he's going to make guys better. He's going to elevate games. He's going to hide inefficiencies, of course. Um, but yeah, if LeBron James is thinking about staying in Cleveland long term and finishing the last five, six, seven, eight years of his career, however long he's got left in the tank. You have a guy like Andrew Wiggins, who I still think is bound to have a Kawhi Leonard-type role and greatness to him if he's playing on a team that's really good, where he's not required to be the best player, but he can go out there and be the best player because everyone around him makes him so much better. I think that that's where his destiny is, and having a guy like that next to LeBron could be invaluable once he starts getting older and maybe not being able to keep up with the young guns and defending the, the Kevin Durants and the Paul Georges every single night, every other night. Right, yeah. From and, a from a know, Suns perspective, is there a Kevin Love trade that you think would be appealing to Minnesota, whether it's roping in a third team or just kind of doing it straight up? You know, I, I think we have really good assets to throw their way. Um, the question is what Phoenix would be willing to part with. I mean, whether that's Alex Lynn or, you know, the Lakers pick or, you know, uh, hopefully not uh, Drogic or Bledsoe because, if you bring them into it, I, I no longer think it's worth it for us. We we just become essentially the the Timberwolves the last season um, if we bring Love in with without those two guys. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely think we have the assets to throw an interesting package their way. Um, but again, it's it's it depends on what the Suns are willing to part with. Yeah, I'm. I'm... If I'm the Phoenix Suns on the other end of the phone, I, I say exactly what you just said. Any Phoenix Suns pick you want, uh, Alex, and, and then any player on the roster not named Drogic or Bledsoe. So, right. you know, take yeah. your pick of two to three players, you know, three to four, you know, we can have that conversation. Um, and then, you know, any amount of Phoenix Suns picks that you want. If you want to talk about that Lakers pick, you better go find a third team that's going to get us something comparable, or you better consider throwing in something that you guys got, which I don't know if we necessarily want anything that you guys have outside of Kevin Love. So that Lakers pick yeah. ends up... But again, you're talking to a guy that looks at Kevin Love not as a top 10 NBA player, not as a guy that impacts winning, not as a guy that I think is going to bridge the gap of the Suns being a, a borderline playoff team to a championship contender. He makes them from a borderline playoff contender to probably that six to eight seed in the Western conference. That's just my opinion on the guy though. I, I look at him a little bit differently. I have different lenses for Kevin Love than most of the NBA does. I, yeah, I, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think he would put some contention for the West at least. Um, but I, I could see why you might be hesitant considering, you know, he's, he's never brought a team to the playoffs and, you know, all, all those knocks against him. And his, his, uh, uh, his uh, less than stellar defense, something that uh, seems worth throwing away all our assets for. But um, I, I do certainly think that he would turn us into a pretty great team. So there you go, Suns fans. There's two guys that don't think that Kevin Love is the savior to the masses. But, you know, the caveat of him playing with Gorin and playing with Bledsoe, 
would create something pretty dynamic and pretty special. So I, I, as much as I say that I don't think Kevin Love is a top 10 NBA player, it's all about who you play with sometimes. So I think that getting him on a roster with those two guys would be some pretty awesome stuff. I agree with you completely. I think that that would make them a very compelling, very interesting, pretty dynamic team overall. Pretty tough to stop on offense for sure. Um, overall, we'll see what happens with that. I don't think Kevin Love ends up in a Suns uniform. I know that the, the fantasy booking of the... The Suns fans and the Brightsiders, they're going to be upset with hearing that. But I, I just I don't see them putting together a deal that's worthwhile unless they throw one of the point guards and the top five pick in there. Because when you're talking to teams about two former number one overall picks and a guy that's a pretty much going to be an all-star probably for the rest of his career in Clay Thompson, it's tough to say, well, we'll give you some guys that are pretty good. Like, we'll give you a Kevin Garnett package. Um, <laughs> if you And they've already had a Kevin Garnett package. Uh, so they're, they're not going to do that with Kevin Love. They, they want to get as much as they can for that guy. Yeah, I agree. Um, it, it would definitely uh, be difficult to swing that trade with uh, without offering something sweet. You know, I, I wrote in one of my articles that I would assume it would take Drogic or you know something pretty close to that to to swing it. But yeah, I, I don't see it. I don't see it happening, which is unfortunate because Kevin Love would be a great fit here. But that's the way it works. And this is why you just wait till free agency next year and potentially grab hold of maybe a Paul Millsap, grab a Kevin Love, make other deals. Guys, when you have money to spend, that doesn't mean you got to pull it out of your wallet and go buy whatever the hell's in front of you if it's not what you want. So that's right. the biggest that thing. Mean, yeah. It doesn't mean you go out and sign uh, Greg Monroe. Exactly. Yeah. You don't go out there and you don't trade for Josh Smith just because you want to upgrade power forward. And yes, he's an upgrade at power forward, but does he upgrade your team overall, Greg Monroe and, and all that. And so I've wrapped my head around Isaiah Thomas improving this team, but I don't know if I could wrap my head around, you know, bringing Greg Monroe or Josh Smith or, you know, fill in the blank free agent that's left over overpaying them just because we didn't get what we wanted overall in the offseason. Hold your chips together. Keep them close to the vest like they did with the Mech Okafor. There wasn't anything out there right. worth trading for a Mech Okafor's contract, so they just didn't trade it. It wasn't worth doing. Um, so it's a tough pill for fans to swallow. I know that. I get that. But it's the smartest basketball decision you can make sometimes is to do nothing. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Be patient. Something will, something will come our way in 2015. Absolutely. So that's a good way to end the podcast there. So Garrett, since you're new to the podcast and, and getting uh, getting you out there on Twitter and how people can check you out. So what's what's coming up on the slate in terms of you writing and how can people follow you on social networking? Um, I, I actually don't have any uh, uh, planned articles at the moment, but, you know, I like writing about controversial things. So <laughs> anything that comes up, I'll, I'll uh, take a stab at it. Um, as far as Twitter, uh, my Twitter handle is uh, the underscore real underscore Benson. Um, so you can you can go there for uh, any Suns news. <laughs> All right, man. Well, I appreciate you jumping on. This is good stuff. I think we're done with Jim Kokenauer. Um, I think that we've uh, we've officially one hundred percent replaced him. Jim, I'm I'm being sarcastic. You can jump on the show again. <laughs> uh, but no, that's that's episode sixty one. So check out the links will be in the post here. But you know, check out the stuff on TuneIn, um, download the application, subscribe to the podcast. It's just like iTunes and all those other things, but it's just another name, another opportunity and way to do it. Um, you know, tell a friend, share with your fellow Suns fans, and we'll be back next week, if not sooner, with more Phoenix Suns podcast, the BS of the Suns podcast on Bright Side of the Sun. Thanks for listening, folks. Great. Thanks for having me.